morning, and welcome to Warden on this Good Friday. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're so glad that you chose to be with us today. We're in a message series called The Way to Victory. Together, we've been following Jesus' last days to the cross. First, we visited Bethany, where Jesus was anointed for his burial. This past Sunday, we followed Jesus to Gethsemane. Today, we arrive at our final destination, Golgotha. Today, we arrive at the cross. In two days, it's Easter Sunday. Now, I love the excitement of Easter Sunday, the joy and the celebration over our risen Savior. I remember as a child, I would get a pretty new pastel dress to wear to church on Easter Sunday. But before the pastel colors of Easter lies a horrifying and blood-stained Good Friday. We shouldn't rush past it in our hurry to get to the empty tomb. Let's not overlook the gruesomeness of Golgotha. The resurrection is made as cheap as those fake plastic eggs that we put in our Easter baskets if we don't linger long and hard over what happened that day at Golgotha. The cross is central to Christianity, and it's the cross that's the particular scandal of Christianity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So today we focus on what happened at Golgotha. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark 15.22-39. Again, that's Mark 15.22-39. It says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Let's just pause for a moment and pray. 
God, we come to you. God, we thank you that you loved us so much. That you willingly died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And on this Good Friday, Lord, I pray that it would become so real to us that we would just be able to reflect and remember and, and, and cause it, God, to change us. Cause it, Lord, to, to make us different, to look at sin in a different way, God. That we would turn away from the things that are, are wrong and the things that hurt your heart, Lord. Help us to know you in a deeper way. God, help me as I speak today to say what you would have me to say. And I thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in taking a fresh look at what the Bible says about the events surrounding the cross, I discovered something that I never really noticed before. Three out of the four gospel accounts refer to the place that Jesus was crucified in the Hebrew language as Golgotha. Only in one account and only on one occasion in the entirety of the New Testament is the place referred to as Calvary. I also realize we don't sing about Golgotha, do we? But we often sing songs about Calvary. And personally, I don't know one church that's named Golgotha. There's no Golgotha Pentecostal or Golgotha for Gospel Assembly. I've never heard one. But I've heard many. I can't even count the number of churches called Calvary. And it made me think, why do we refer to that place in a way that's seldom referred to in the Gospels? Now, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with referring to the place as Calvary. But I believe that the answer is quite clear. Although Calvary and Golgotha are the same place and their names mean almost exactly the same thing, I believe that in our modern world they've adopted a subtle yet different view of the cross. Golgotha has come to represent the ugliness of that place, where Calvary seems to point to the glory of the place, God's grace and his love and victory. Every time Golgotha is named, the meaning of its name is emphasized as the place of the skull. It seems that this mountain itself bears both the reputation of death and also the appearance of death. I've never been there myself, but from pictures I've seen and what people say that have actually seen it, it looks like a giant skull. Now, even the sound of the name seems more crude and ugly as it comes from your lips. Golgotha. Would you say that with me? Golgotha. Well, Calvary. Now, that sounds more poetic. Say Calvary. Sounds much nicer, right? Well, I'm here this morning to remind you that Golgotha and Calvary are, in fact, the same place. They are inseparable. We can't separate the ugliness of the cross from the glory of the cross. We can't separate the grace of the cross from the pain of the cross. We can't separate the victory of the cross from the violence of the cross. And I'm convinced that we can't really embrace the power of the cross without embracing the ugliness of the cross as well. In a sense, we must discover that the victorious Calvary is also ugly Golgotha. My desire this morning is to introduce you to the ugliness of the cross so that its beauty might shine through. 
See, the light never shines as brightly as it does in the darkest night. But be warned, what we're about to visit is not some picture of the cross that's been toned down so as not to offend our sensitive natures, but the reality that was Golgotha. This is what I would call an R-rated sermon because of the bloodshed and the violence. So our destination this morning, Golgotha. It was a place of execution. The fact is, Jesus was executed. He died as a criminal among criminals. Crucifixion wasn't the only form of execution in that day. There were many other forms, things like beheading or burning at the stake. But no form was so symbolically shameful or excruciatingly painful. The Sanhedrin, they could have asked for any form of death, but they chose the cross. They chose the worst imaginable kind of execution at that time. They understood that to the Romans, they couldn't even speak of the cross. To the Jews, it wasn't merely a death. It would have been considered cursed by God, and universally, it would have been viewed with horror. But the religious leaders, they wanted to heap on Jesus the maximum humiliation and shame. It had also become the Romans' favorite method to deal with rebellions at the time. I believe, you know, that it was no mistake that Jesus was born when he was born and that he died when he died. The cross was the only death that could reflect the wrath of God on our sins, where punishment was intentional and pain was extended. Unlike some executions, death was not the chief goal of crucifixion. Pain was. The Romans, they had perfected the heart of crucifixion to maximize pain. They knew how to prolong the horror of death without allowing their victims to lapse into unconsciousness. They took great care not to damage vital organs so that they could torture the body to the greatest extent. I read that the emperor Tiberius had admitted that he preferred crucifixion because it extended punishment without granting its victims the relief of death until they could utterly take it no more. Hanging on the cross, naked and humiliated, our Lord suffered the most painful death known to the ancient world. A pain beyond description. It would have been excruciating. As a matter of fact, the word we use for excruciating comes from the Latin, which means out of the cross. I don't think that we could ever say of Jesus that he doesn't understand my pain. Not only did he bear our pain, but he refused the pain-numbing mixture that was offered him when he got to the cross. Jesus allowed nothing to ease the pain. We must also not forget that the horrors of the scourging with the Roman whip and the crown of thorns was just the beginning of the ever-increasing torture that lay ahead for Jesus. He stumbled, he staggered, another helped him carry his cross, but he never stopped. They arrived at Golgotha. The soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. The large nails were approximately six inches long, and they looked like railroad spikes to us, but they were much sharper. The hands, they were nailed first, and then the left foot was pressed towards uh, against the right foot and nailed in place. As the nails pierced his hands and his feet, they would sever nerve endings, sending excruciating pain through his body, causing him to convulse in pain. He was nailed with his hands at a 90-degree angle, 
But when the cross was lifted and dropped into place, it would jerk his arms out of joint and the weight of his body would make it nearly impossible to breathe. Psalm 22:14 says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting in the midst of my bowels. See, to breathe, Jesus would have had to push on those nail-pierced feet and pull up on his hands just to catch a breath. In that situation, I read that air can be drawn in, but it was so difficult to exhale. The fact that Jesus spoke from the cross lets us know that even in that kind of pain, he would uh, sacrifice that precious breath just to minister to those around him. Most often, men crucified didn't die from their wounds, but they died when they could no longer have the strength to push themselves up and would literally suffocate or drown in their own fluids. The most common method of ending crucifixion early was to shatter the bones in the legs, making it impossible to push up. This is what happened to the two criminals that hung next to Jesus, but not Jesus himself. On the cross, one struggled with every imaginable pain, hunger, a burning thirst, open wounds, fever, Severe cramps that sent waves of pain through his body. Dizziness and nausea. Convulsions, the loss of blood. And if that wasn't enough, all the sin brought upon this earth, Jesus experienced that day. It truly was unimaginable suffering. But Jesus, he transformed Golgotha, this place of execution, into a place of mercy. See, his plan to bring mercy to all people was executed at his place of execution. The cross was the place where mercy seemingly had no place until Jesus came. When one was condemned to the cross, mercy was no longer an option. I think it was divinely orchestrated that Jesus hung in the middle of two guilty criminals, one on his left and one on his right. D.L. Moody once said, the thief had nails through both hands so that he couldn't work, and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He couldn't lift a hand or a foot towards his salvation, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God, and he took it. Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. But his hands is extended both to those who will accept him as Lord and even those who will slur and slander him. The only Jesus could turn Golgotha, this place of execution, into a place of mercy. Golgotha, it was also a place of death. Death was the only relief when it came to the cross. And death was the fullest sentence of the cross. It was here at Golgotha that Jesus died. It was a place of death. I read that this one woman wrote to J. Vernon McGee, and this is what she said in her letter. Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your pastor with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. <laughs> a little harsh, I think, but we get the point. Jesus died that day at Golgotha. 
And we should never doubt Jesus' death. These centurions, they had crucified hundreds, if not thousands of men on crosses. They were experts when it came to death. Yet they even took the added precaution of piercing him beneath the ribs. Jesus died on the cross that day. And when you see a cross, let it remind you that Jesus was here and he suffered and he died for you. Romans 6.33 says, The wages of sin is death. And at Golgotha, Jesus was receiving the wages of your sin and mine. Every sin you and I have ever committed, every bad thought, every slip of the tongue, every act of disobedience, every time we've made a cutting remark, every time we've allowed our eyes to dwell on something that didn't glorify God, every sin was piled on the back of the Savior. Isaiah 53, 5 says, And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He went through that so that we would not have to. You see, Jesus transformed this place of death into a place of life. Death came by way of Adam's fall, but life came by the second Adam being lifted up. He died so that we would know, wouldn't have to know the sting of death and that the door of eternal life will be opened up before us. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57 says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Golgotha was not only a place of execution and a place of death, it was also a forsaken place. Have you ever felt forsaken? abandoned by those around you. That was the reality of the cross. You know, we often focus on the physical struggles Jesus experienced at Golgotha, but there was emotional pain heaped on Jesus as well. The way to Golgotha was paved with those who had forsaken Jesus. He was forsaken by his own. One disciple would forsake him for 30 pieces of silver and seal it with a kiss. Another disciple would curse even having known him. And all but one disciple would abandon him at the cross. Those he had poured his life into now acted as if they didn't even know him. It was unimaginable the depth of pain that he must have felt when those he loved forsook him. He was also forsaken by the Father. We hear it in the cry of Jesus, the brokenness of knowing that heaven has abandoned him now. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as far as we know, that's the only time he ever asked the Father, why? And it's the answer to Jesus' question that should cause us to tremble, to repent, and to change. It was sin. You see, God punished Jesus for the sins of all people of all time. It was my sin. It was your sin. God did to Jesus what should have been done to you, what should have been done to me. He felt forsaken by the Father so that we would never have to feel forsaken by the Father, that we could be accepted by him. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a message on this passage once, and he said, I think I can understand the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as they are written by David in the 22nd Psalm. But the same words, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uttered from Jesus on the cross, I cannot comprehend, so I shall not pretend to be able to explain them. I feel like Charles Spurgeon. I shall not pretend to be able to explain them either. There's a lot about this that we can't be sure, but one thing we do know for sure is that he screamed that statement. In verse 33, the words cried out are a combination of two words, to shout and the prefix up, to shout or to scream up. It's often used in scripture as a glutteral scream or a roar. You see, there's a depth of feeling in this cry from the heart, maybe with an intensity matched only by the darkness which draped itself over this terrible scene. In the midst of this cry, we're able to catch a glimpse into the depth of Christ's suffering on the cross. He felt forsaken. Now, the word forsaken is a term of proximity. It implies that someone was once by your side, and now they're not. They're not next to you anymore they've left. See, to be forsaken is to be separated from someone. And many circumstances can leave us feeling forsaken. A divorce, a breakup, a loss of a job, a family feud, a hurtful comment, or maybe you've been misunderstood, or you feel as though you're invisible to those around you. Maybe the past two years dealing with this pandemic and being in isolation has left you feeling forsaken. Whatever the reason, we know from this statement from the cross that Jesus can identify with us. Whenever we feel alone, whenever we feel abandoned or betrayed, Jesus has already been there. He understands. And Jesus, he transformed this forsaken place into a place of acceptance. See, the good news is, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I will never be God-forsaken. Because of the cross, we who believe in Jesus will never have to cry out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, in Hebrews 13.5, we're given the most amazing promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You are never alone, never forsaken in your pain. Jesus has experienced the very depths of forsakenness. Jesus was alone in his pain so that you and I are not alone in ours. He was forsaken so that we will never be. In a mission hospital in Kenya, they shared this following story. Eight-year-old Monica, she fell into a pit. The, the fall broke her leg and she lay helpless in the bottom of the pit, unable to get out. An older woman, Mama Najari, happened to come along the same path. She saw the girl in distress and climbed into the pit to help get Monica out. In the process of helping Monica, a dangerous black mamba snake bit both Mama Najari and Monica. Monica was taken to a nearby medical center and admitted. Mama Najari went home, but never woke from her sleep. The next day, the nurse explained Mama Najari's death to Monica, telling her that the snake had bitten both of them, but all the snake's poison was extended to Mama Najari. She was alive because there was no poison left to infect Monica. On the cross, Jesus has taken the poison of sin, all of it. He would die willingly so that we could live. 
He was executed to execute his plan for our forgiveness. He was forsaken so that we would be accepted and never have to be alone. We must remember that he did not lose his life for us. He gave his life for us. Golgotha was indeed a place of victory. And because of what happened at Golgotha, we too can find our way to victory through the cross. So what do you need victory over in your life today? Think about it. Whatever it is that you are struggling with, I want you to know that there is victory in the cross. The cross has the final word. Or maybe you're listening and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. I want you to know that you matter to God. He loves you so much that he died a cruel death on the cross. He took the punishment for your sin and mine so that we could be forgiven and have a personal relationship with him. If you'd like to accept this free gift of salvation today, would you pray this simple prayer with me, even right now? Just pray, dear Lord, I know that, you are, that I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and I invite you into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer, please let us know. We want to rejoice and journey with you. If you're online, just click the I commit my life to Christ button in the chat room right now.